0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Ganbei. I'm your host, Art Dicker. Today, we have another roundtable format uh, a podcast. Today, we are talking about FDI in China and particular kind of the current state of affairs. There's a lot of noise out there about... Um, whether um, uh, American investment in particular, I think, is stable, um, whether it's, it's still growing in some side, yeah, doing in China these days, and just the total picture of foreign investment in China, as we obviously are in some, some uh, interesting times, both economically and politically around the world. Um, I have three fantastic guests today. Uh, Paul Lin is a brand marketing consultant at Saver Corporation and chair of marketing, uh, chair of the marketing committee at the American Chamber of Commerce. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Good to be here. Again, Paul is a repeat guest for for folks who caught our very first Gambe episode. Paul was our first guest. We have Nico Bamanyar, senior consultant at Leaf, uh, a French law firm here in China. Welcome, Nico. Thank you, Hart. Happy to be here. Great. And we have Tommy Greb, uh, who is partner at Olivar and Greb Capital Management. Welcome, Tommy. Thank you. It's great to be here, too. Yes, all-star panel, and um, I think we can just um, first give you guys each a chance to give a little more of an introduction of yourself. Um, try and keep it short, if maybe to less than a minute, if you can, and then we'll jump right into our topic. So start back with you, Paul. If you can just briefly introduce yourself to the audience again.
1: Thank you, Art, and uh, it's great to be back at Gumbe. Um, I was I was the first guest, so. I was probably a a pilot project Um, (laughs) as these things age better over time. But uh, yeah, my name is Paul Lin. I'm a marketing and branding consultant based here in Shanghai. Uh, I share the marketing and media committee. And uh, at the same time, I work with a lot of startups with a bunch of accelerators here in China, helping early stage startups get from zero to one or one to 10. Uh, When they get from 10 to 100, then they. They need a lot more, they have a lot more money and and they don't necessarily need uh, consulting services at that point. Um, I work with a lot of multinationals and startups, so both of the spectrum, uh, really excited to be here and really just talk about the state of the nation, state of brands, uh, a lot of activity uh, within that sort of, within that category and within that space right now. So uh, yeah, so really excited to, 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 to talk about this with uh, these panel of guests.
2: Okay, great. Thanks, Paul and Nico. Um, so my name is, is Nico Um So I work for uh, Leaf Law Firm, we're a, um, a boutique law firm specialized in M&A. Um, so everything about um, structuring. Corporation to, to come in China, to, to deploy in China. Um, and um, my focus is really on the tech aspect of it, because we service a lot of tech clients. Um, so not so much about the traditional m and or the traditional corporate side, but more about cybersecurity compliance. Um, so in China, it's a little bit wider than what you would expect in the US or in uh, Europe about just data privacy. But it's really the, the entire spectrum of cybersecurity. Um, and this is definitely a, a big concern for companies coming here um, as, a, as an additional uh, market uh, barrier to, to, to come and, and how much they need to disclose, how much they need to, to share. Um, a little bit like the, the, the IP uh, protection that is uh, sometimes a concern. So I'm sure we'll dig mm-hmm. into that later. Definitely, definitely. Thanks, Nico. And Tommy? Yeah, my name is Tom Greb. Um,
3: I work with ONG Capital Management, so we're US-based, but also have a small footprint in Shanghai. Um, My role is developing investment strategies for our clients, which are uh, individuals, small businesses, um, family office, and even nonprofits, which has been pretty fun. Um, In addition, I do a bit of private investment into China uh, and the US. just small deals here and there. Um, so I'm interested to hear, uh, really, from Paul too, what he's seeing on the consumer side. Um, and you know, the, the investment landscape in China has seen really
0: fast growth the past couple of years. So, looking forward to talking about it. Absolutely, yes. And we have a very broad um, uh, representative panel of kind of different industries, different sectors. So, um, so we should have most of this covered. And without further ado, let's jump into it. So so I wanted to start off first at kind of the macro level. Um, You know, we've seen, um, despite uh, COVID and kind of a global macro slowdown, China is still a bright spot relative, especially to the rest of the world. Now, the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai has put out the China Business Report 2020. Um, We're going to cite that report several times during this uh, discussion. And in that report, one in three U.S. companies in China expect revenue to still actually increase in 2020 over 2019. So this is an open question to the panel. What sectors out, do we see out there that are doing the best right now? Um, is it you know, consumer, um, probably not manufacturing, but then within that, um, are there certain um, types of companies which are still doing very well in China right now?
1: Yeah, why don't why don't I start off why don't I start off uh, with that? And and that's a really good question. Um, you know, China I, it has gone out of COVID. Um, you know, based on rigorous testing, based on all the sort of factors from a public health uh, perspective. So there's a level of confidence that you're seeing within just by going outside with the general public uh, around you know a, a sort of a back to normal, right? So. But I think, you know, a lot of Q2, Q3 uh, earnings reports came out recently. And you're seeing it in specific categories that were very much lockdown specific, okay? So uh, you're seeing it within certain food categories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my wife works for one of the biggest uh, potato chip companies globally around the world. Uh, it is a multinational, but here in China, it is pretty much as, you know, if it, it's Lays, but it's very much a local brand right? Um, and they had phenomenal growth over the first half of the year, okay? So people were locked down, people were, you know, not necessarily adhering to fitness uh, so much, and they wanted certain elements of comfort, right? So the snacking category, low involvement, you know, low costs were doing extremely well. Uh, there was a report that came out recently around, uh, around uh, brand value for Chinese companies, and entertainment was another one that skyrocketed. And when I talk about entertainment, I'm talking about the big, you know, technology, uh, digital platforms, right? So the Netflix of the world, but China-based, right? IGE, uh, Tencent, um, again, a lot of those companies are doing very well uh, because where people were subscribing, right? People were paying the fees, people were interacting The increase in, in engagement across screens and the depth and the amount of time they were spending were increasing, right? So those brands and all those, all those companies that are publicly listed did tremendously well. All right. You saw it in categories that, you know, where, you know, some, I'll I'll bring up some nuances. So beauty actually, it would be, it's interesting because beauty actually the behavior increased, right? In the sense that people were stuck at home, people were actually more willing to experiment with different brands, different types of products because they were at home, right? So, Not, so categories around, you know, rejuvenation of skin, um, you know, masks, all those different things that women had, again, had a a huge amount of time. They were still working from home, but they had, they could wear masks while they were doing a lot of their conference calls or sitting behind a computer. Again, those are use cases, but those are specific category uh, elements that were increasing over time. And then the other one is, is probably video games, again, All of these categories are very much work from home, the ability to do it from the comfort, um, which again, saw a lot of increases uh, over the first half of the year and are probably still increasing uh, as we get to the back half of the year. Yeah,
3: Yeah, that's a good point on the gaming, esports, and live streaming is the, not just China, but US too, all over the world. Um, Yes. So that's Activision, Huya, um, anything digital gaming related is just doing incredible.
0: Yeah. And these foreign foreign uh, companies, these are foreign companies participating in this kind of um, consumer and and food F&B and food F and B and entertainment sectors just as much as local companies. You wouldn't differentiate uh, differentiate them that much it's, it's maybe it's a rising tide lifting all ships and 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 and, and that's some of the optimism there for and some of the, the revenue growth year on year for those one in three companies we just mentioned.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, I'll you, go know back what, to you know, Art, hard. Hard. It's, yeah. it's, you know, when I, sorry, let me, let me just add some nuance there. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're seeing it across, again, they're very much category specific, right? So within that category, it's very broad, right? So if we look at F&B space, um, we were there, again, the data showed that there was a lot of growth with, you know, uh, foreign snacking products, foreign food products. Uh, again, people were at home. They were more they were open to experimenting and trying new things out because they were within the confines of home. Again, the the other part is there was an element around comfort, right? So yeah. there were a lot of traditional sort of nostalgic brands that probably, again, if you're ta- if you're in, in a normal world, if you're tapping into post-95s, they wouldn't necessarily resonate. Okay. But I think their the ability to have that much free time? The ability to again, the, it's also a generational thing. You got to think about, right? A lot of you know, a lot of households here, uh, especially in China, they have three generations of families within a single household, right? So the ability to sort of buy products that 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 or consume products that were specific for that age category sort of filtered out uh, throughout the entire household um, that you're seeing, right? So, uh, so you know, within so I think that is you know within the nuance of let's say F and B and food products gaming is very much localized right entertainment is, is obviously very much localized beauty is is and and, and a lot of the cosmetics that we're uh, industry that we're seeing you know again with all the tactics uh, that Tom brought around around live streaming and, and all that stuff again where we were seeing a lot of that because people had time to, to to do it okay so yeah. yes we're getting out of covid we're getting into the new normal people are going out there's you know uh, that is starting to happen but I think there's still an element of of, of of you know of q1 q2 that is that is still a population here in this market
0: yeah it's an it's an interesting interesting question is whether whether you know because obviously covid and q1 and q2 skewed a few things mostly probably to the negative but there were certainly some sectors which that we just talked about which skewed them to the positive because people were staying at home and whatnot and it's interesting if you could just look at maybe q3 which where things have now finally kind of gotten back to normal and you wonder you know i mean literally i mean there are summers as obviously people have heard by now there's some restrictions people uh, maybe not doing exactly going back to what life was like before but otherwise mostly back to normal here and i wonder if if that just means all consumer trends before um before covid are, are kind of back online and where they where they were going and and kind of 6% growth is, is back and, and everything. And, and um, it, w- it's, it's, it is so hard to read the data because you, you wouldn't know if those w- w- one out of three companies, um, yeah, disproportionately benefited from, from Q1 and Q2, ironically from, the, uh, from COVID, so it's a good point. We, won't, we don't really know for sure, but it seems like things are back to normal. And so those companies which were already doing well in 2019 are still doing well in 2020 without much change.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll actually add just a, a little bit of insight into another category. So now, again, because we're going back to normal, you know, the hottest category that I've heard, and I've heard it from a, a few people within my circle of friends who have actually ended up buying, let's say, electric scooters, so Xiaonu, mm-hmm. right, or bicycles, um, have increased, right? So I went to, I went with a friend to a Xiaonu store, because uh, he wanted to buy uh, an electric scooter, and the guy at the store saying, you know, we've had the best- Pretty much the best quarter, the best you know year ever, right? In a category, and again, it's very much, it's always been around, but now with the new normal, people you know the hesitation around being in a metro station, the just the hesitation about being around, infrastructure, you know, transportation hubs where there's so many people, um, and when you buy a bike, you, you know it's a it's a big investment, right? It's about 5,000 uh, RMB, and then you buy the bike, and then you end up using it, and then if you start end up using it, you're not gonna you know even if there was no COVID around you know, that sort of change of behavior will then filter on down, right? So again, it's a, it's a, it's 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 actually a category that I've never read about, but I only know about it because I, I, we're starting to see it more. You know, I go to the store for Xiaonu, uh, and the guy can't keep enough electric scooters, and the bicycle shop cannot keep enough bikes in because people just ended up, you know, using two-wheel transportation. Uh, you know, Mobike and sort of the shared economy with bicycles are there, but again, people don't necessarily, you know, you gotta you know use the handles, you gotta wipe it down, all those sort of elements that are still with us from a legacy perspective, you know, about being clean and all that, it's still with us, but again, people are, are, are purchasing these things um, and that's not gonna go back to, you know, people aren't necessarily gonna go back to public transportation
0: or, or, yeah. or, or driving, right? Yeah. So we're gonna probably get back to consumer again later on, but I wanted to switch a bit over to, um, the U.S.-China trade tensions in general, and that obviously, I think, most acutely is affecting tech, uh, but it does affect uh, broadly. I think um, investment by U.S. companies uh, in China, um, especially. Of course, there's there's spillover as well, probably to Europe as well, which which perhaps Nico can can talk about in a bit. But but pulling some a data point from that same AmCham survey, um, they're uh, looking at U.S. companies. Obviously, this is who the survey is. Um, the five-year optimism uh, about uh, the market in China is, is is definitely down year on year. And 71.3% of U.S. companies are planning to either decrease or flatline their investment in China. And the report itself cites U.S.-China trade tensions as the as kind of the common explanation. Um, here's a really broad question for you guys. Do we think the trade tensions um, are here to stay? And if so, is that going to... St- Still, kind of uh, affect tech the most? Is, is tech the, the biggest victim here? Because we, a lot of people call this a trade war, but really it seems to be morphing into a technology war. Nico, you probably could, you, you have tech clients, and so I don't, yeah. you may not see this as much directly as I do, but it'd be interesting to hear what which, which you've been seeing on the ground.
2: Well, we've talked uh, we've talked about this um, in a previous episode, and and there was a lot of, of tension between U.S. and China, um, U.S. specifically targeting some uh, some Chinese companies, so Huawei and and TikTok, um, where China was responding with very uh, broad uh, policies, not not specifically targeting uh, the U.S. but any foreign companies. And what happened is essentially uh, you get a lot of U.S. company, of course. Um, uh, that was targeted by those policies in china uh but also any foreign company really the were now being uh, collateral damages so uh potentially you have you have a, a european company um, now under the, the scrutiny of um of chinese government uh regarding uh, regarding tech and what i see is and maybe this explains the decrease in investment from uh, from uh, Uh, companies, uh, foreign companies, coming to China, is either you have um, uh, companies coming here to target the Chinese market, and they're going to invest, they're going to um, develop their product, they're going to do R&D, and they're going to um, uh, generally just tap into the Chinese market. And you have companies investing here um, to tap into maybe um, lower-cost labor force, Um, uh, especially for R&D but this R&D will benefit the rest of the global operations and I think that this part now is almost completely frozen simply because as a foreign company um, if you inject money in China uh, for R&D that should benefit the rest of the world then you might actually lose that money because the tech will be stuck because the tech will need to be reviewed um, by the government, um, will need to be approved to be exported. Um, And when I say the product of tech R&D, it's very broad. It doesn't have to be um, a physical product doesn't have to be a patent. It can just be a service. So literally if you have people working, um, uh, let's say in the US, in Europe and in China Part of the the tech will be actually subject to uh, to the review. So suddenly you have um you have a a big part of the the foreign companies that now consider um China as a um, um a market that you should go in only if you want to uh, do business in China. And essentially people are discovering the in China for China. And it's uh, I mean I'm sure that uh, that Paul sees this with uh, with uh, big companies arriving here and, and now just being a domestic company is it's uh, uh, everything that you do abroad doesn't really make sense um in china you need to to localize a lot of stuff and everything that you invest um will stay here so everything that you put in the china pot will stay in the china pot uh you of course as a foreign company hope that it will generate revenues um but essentially the uh the 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 kickback so the tech kickback the uh, the um, the benefit that you will get from your operation in China um are not necessarily going to um benefit the rest of your of your global operation and, and I think that this is the the big um, the big issue that we have with this uh with this U.S. China um trade war slash tech war it's a proper tech war um is that um you need to understand as a, as a foreign company uh, that everything you put in China potentially will be stuck in China.
0: That, there's a lot of there's a lot of onions, layers of that onion to peel, potentially. Um, the, you know, one thing um, I still my sense is that uh, you're, you're right, Nico, that there is definitely a heightened risk for multinational companies to to have more to keep a high level of their R&D here. For, for fear of not being able to kind of take the work product out of China and use it globally as they have always done because China's is, for example, China has a, a tremendous pool of engineers um, and very um, productive and, 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 a, and a big market to be in in the first place for, for, for developing talent. Um, I obviously the US has very stringent like export controls not just at the top level kind of licensing requirements but for it can getting down into individuals, right? So, in, individual engineers, depending on their nationality, have to go through th- certain kinds of, you know, have to be screened off from, from certain access and so forth. You know, I'm familiar with that from from spending years in the semiconductor industry, and I always thought that that was quite a, a U.S. kind of centric, U.S. kind of. I don't want to say quite paranoia, but a U.S. kind of um, heightened regulatory scheme. Do we really see China moving in that direction too, or is that still just kind of threatening to say, well, you know, if you're going to be doing this uh, in the U.S., then we're going to be doing this in China. We're going to all, of, like you said, all of the, all of your your R and D, your um, results, which which are in certain industries, may have to be reviewed before being exported, or is that still kind of um, is China still in the phase where they're still welcoming foreign investment in R and D, and would be wary to, for that for that perception to be out there too much for multinational companies?
2: China will always welcome foreign investment, um, especially in the form of IP. Um, mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be money. Um, China has no money problem. Uh, it's not even the. Yeah. The question, um, but if you look at the the opening uh, since the eighties, uh, the, the, there is a, a strong appetite uh, for for IP for tech, essentially to to get back at the at the, at the level where, um, for example, US and Europe are. So, you, you, essentially, there was three waves. There was the 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 eighties ninety waves where it was all about grabbing all the uh, the tech possible. Um, there was the, uh, the, the 2000s uh, wave where it was all about creating slowly the domestic market. So getting that, that tech and that IP um, on the markets and, and um, create the consumer loop. And, and now we've seen um, since about you know, 10 years um, the, the opposite uh, trend where it's more about China going global uh, but still feeding um, IP. So either uh, you get external uh, feeds of, of IP and y- you can consider that as a foreign investment um, or you get domestic champion being uh, being built here. Um, so China is, is very aware that uh, they, they, they don't have the capability uh, yet um, to, to be a, a really innovation uh, leader. Um, and um, they are at a level now, um, where they are innovation champion, I would say. Uh, we see a lot of uh, Chinese company pushing. Xiaomi is, uh, is uh, doing some remarkable progress. Um, we have a lot of, uh, of big Chinese companies here really pushing on innovation. Um, but it's going to take about 30 years to reach a level where China is uh, really going to be uh, a, a leader. And when I say Thirty years. This is not my analysis. This is actually the policy. Uh, if you look at the policies for two thousand and six about um, pushing uh, forward uh, China on innovation, the goal was for China to become a champion by twenty twenty. This is now, so they're on target. Um, so everything that you see happening now about slowly locking some um, some tech uh, in China. Uh, so really absorbing, digesting, this is all part of uh, a plan. And and some people tend to forget this, especially in uh, in Western, um, you know, uh, political systems where it's very easy every four or five years to have a complete different direction. Uh, in China, you always have a, a long game in mind. And, and this long game regarding innovation is... Uh, is is very much uh, on point at the moment. So, 2020, China is a innovation champion, and 2050, um, a leader.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think I think China, as you said, kind of still is 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 a in a lot of technologies is a generation behind. And, and again, semiconductor industry, which is, has sort of become. The front line of this technology war lately is it's it's definitely a generation behind, and it's not something that you can just, as you said, China has a lot of money, but you can't just kind of drop money from the sky and and suddenly build a a um, a, a better chip, um, a world a world um, the global leading chip. And one of the things why I think that China is probably going to hesitate to completely reciprocate on some of the export control restrictions is one, it's, it's, it's cutting off your nose to spite your face a bit where um, you're already being restricted so heavily by the US um, which is dominant in this industry. Um, you would want as much foreign talent and as much foreign investment still to stay here as possible. I mean, for example, anecdotally, they're bringing lots of engineers over from Taiwan which is also an, a great hub of the semiconductor industry with very big pay packages to recruit these folks to come over and work here. Um, and it's just they have every incentive in the world to be open still to foreign talent and foreign investment in the tech space. So my, my take is that, at least in some sectors, still a lot of noise just to be like, well, we're, we can be tough, too. But um, I think that they would be wary to scare off um, foreign investment in, in technology areas too much. What I do think may drive some um, of the slowdown is more that they, the foreign companies themselves see that the market is not here like they thought it was before. And that's part of that is, you know, tech, a lot of tech, at least again, we are talking about semiconductors uh, and other other kind of um, hard technologies is B2B oriented. And in these sectors, um, it's less about patriotic kind of, I wanna buy a Huawei phone versus an Apple phone. It's more about I um, in this sector or relying on this technology I'm nervous right now to partner with an American company. And I don't know, Europe, Europe may be less so, but but to a certain extent, European technology companies are also indirectly using American technology against semiconductor. It's a perfect example. And I see in a lot of anecdotal conversations with people here on the ground that um, working at multinational companies and Chinese companies working with multinational companies, that there is definitely unfortunately a reluctance because it's not so much that they're being restricted by like Huawei is right now, but it's the fear that the next round of sanctions or the rec- next round of restrictions is going to scoop up a wider scope of American companies that will not be allowed to to partner with Chinese companies. And suddenly you're in the middle of designing a product, designing a chip and your, your access is cut off. And so, and that's obviously it can be, it's obviously catastrophic to a design cycle. So. Um, that's not super happy stuff. So what I want to do is switch to Tom, because I think Tom is going to tell us a little bit more about some happy stuff that's going on, um, in, in the sense of sectors that are opening up in for foreign investment, um, in China. And I think finance is one of those sectors. And so Tom, if you could, uh, uh, walk our, walk us and our audience a little bit through that and how you see uh, your business benefiting potentially, and the whole industry benefiting from the opening up in the finance sector.
3: Sure. So, yeah, this has been since 2000, I think, 2002, when QFI was first set up in 2006, when QDII was first set up. This has been in talks for a long time. In classic China, they test the waters, you know, they they slowly open up. But it does seem like this year is a major tipping point. The past two or three years, actually, we've had uh, new exchanges. So the, the star market, which is pretty much the NASDAQ, just got set up. Um, we have new laws about how you value your investment. So it's no longer just, um, like an opaque type of valuation. You have to market to market every day. And it's a good, it's definitely better for transparency, especially with with these fixed products that there's trillions of dollars in, and, and they say it's guaranteed. Um, now they removed the guarantee. So everything is really opening up in a really positive way. Um, most recently, of course, we have. Foreign players are now being allowed in. Um, they said they were going to do it for a while, but now this year it's actually happening. So Vanguard has a robo advisor with with Ant Group. Um, BlackRock just got the, the license to sell mutual funds. Citibank, as you as you put out earlier, um, you know they can custodian assets and they're setting up a securities business. Amundi now can do outbound investment. Um, so that's the good, and I mean the good is that definitely it's a huge market. Um, Maybe it took a while to finally get opened up, but it's, but it's finally opening up. Yeah. Right. I mean, they're, they're estimating that by 2025, the fees that are generated from these, you know, financial you know, asset management is gonna be 75% of what the U.S. is, is right now. So mm-hmm. it's really going, going fast. Um, but I, there are some reservations that I, that I wanted to go through. Um, as a foreign brand coming into China, I mean, j- this is like kind of a macro point of view, but are they gonna trust you to start managing Chinese stocks? Like who knows Chinese, Chinese companies better? A local domestic company that already has a name brand that's been here 20 years, 30 years, or a new guy coming in, the name brand doesn't have as much weight. Um, and Chinese investors are very fickle. They're known to jump from fund to fund very, very quickly. Um, like Yuabao, Yua um, they were the biggest you know, money market in the world. They lost 50% of their assets almost overnight when yields dropped. Um, so the Chinese market, is very difficult to crack, especially as a foreigner. Mm. Um, and then my other reservation, and this is what I kind of see on the ground, um, are Chinese investors ready for traditional asset management? As in, I can invest in in the S&P or or, or any type of index, I don't have a guaranteed return. I have potentially 30, 40, 50 percent potential losses if there's a stock market crash. That is scary as a first-time investor and as a Chinese uh, investor who who hasn't seen the history of the U.S. and, and understands that markets generally do go do go up. Um, so it is very difficult uh, to to crack this nut. Um,
0: so on well, the it's one interesting, hand, it's, yeah. Well, uh, just a couple of good points to follow up from that. So, so if, you know, looking at Chinese investors who, let's say in the, uh, at a personal level, maybe have been, been um, spoiled a bit by, you know, a, a real estate market that it's, it seems to be a, a bubble that never pops. And, um, and so um, a lot of people have gotten housing, let's say for free when the, when the SOEs privatized it 20, 30, 25 years ago or so. And, or just for whatever reason, you know, here in Shanghai, you know, it's, it's very common to see someone owning two or three apartments and, and kind of not even needing to work really, which is, which is a whole other topic we we'll get into someday, but, but um, the. Uh, but that's kind of like a. Uh, you know that's that wasn't a result of good asset management right or something like let's say good investment decisions or something like that and then on the, the other side you might have someone who might be in an, uh, i i suppose a potential lp in a fund or someone else who needs who's ready to invest in alternative assets not just putting their money into the stock market and they have maybe made their money in you know either real estate development or industrial sectors where they just kind of relied on cheap labor and low cost of capital and um, kind of a, a, obviously a rapidly growing economy. And so are all of these, and how, how do you have to educate these kinds of investors who maybe got their wealth not in the traditional way and built it up kind of through proper asset management, capital management?
3: It's just, a, it's a long process. No different than Starbucks when they first got here. I think it took them five years for any type of traction. Um, mm. Chinese, the classic Chinese investor starts very small. And then once there's returns and they trust you, they just increase and increase. So for those that can stick through it, you know, maybe the first few years, I think they're, they're, they're going to be golden and the market's big enough where they know it's worth it. Um, but as mm. you mentioned earlier, they, they will be losing money most likely mm. for the first couple of years. Um, so City, who now, as I mentioned can custody assets last year, um, they turned down the offer to to enter China because the rule was they had to bring in 35 high-level executives, um, and that would have cost them a fortune with, you know, so um, it, it's going to be a difficult road for um, the foreign firms, for sure. But everything positive, it's open. I mean, this is exactly what China needs.
0: Um, so right. positive, it's- but it's going to be difficult. But, but so city but city the, the specific news item you mentioned was it looked like city was was potentially trying to become a local investment bank, um, yes. if I read that right. So then so yeah so you're you're saying for example these big um, firms which big investment banks um, commercial banks and and investment banks maybe traditionally had been fighting over the work to do the underwriting business for IPOs in the Nasdaq or NYSE, right. uh, Hong Kong maybe they still of course did a lot of those as well but now that there's definitely seems to be a clear policy preference for local ipos and of course the vault the valuations the p ratios have always been very high here and so it's always been very enticing to try and list locally and the floodgates are open a little bit because i know there was a big backlog historically of um, csrc letting companies list here so um with all of that it seems like it would be a great market and and these global investment banks have so much more experience i would think than the local champions here, a lot of them, which are, which no offense are government owned, right, or affiliated. And so usually those, just you know, they don't have the same experience and and skill and performance. So even still, you still, is it, can we, maybe we didn't distinguish between some of the, that kind of transactional work and then sort of the personal asset management work. There's, you think some might be more, more favorable for multinational companies and others less so?
3: That's a good point. The IPOs, that's a huge gold mine if they can crack that especially with the star star market mm-hmm. um, there's no cap on first day returns so stocks are seeing 10x you know which yeah. is kind of a warning sign um, yeah. but absolutely there is a differentiation between the institutional and the retail um, I will say that the retail yes they care about back tested you know historical performance but if that year you're not performing they're out and they have someone else right. and then the thing is domestic firms are doing just as well as foreign. Um, I think mm. domestic is doing like nine something percent and foreign firms have done 10 or 11 um, annualized. So there, it's just almost just as good so um, it should be it should be interesting. Just a quick note on, on Nico's point about um, whether China wants you know new investment I think absolutely. And for the financial world, I think it's centered around risk management chinese and you know china does not want to make a mistake and when you're dealing with derivative i mean they're, it's like nuclear weapons pretty much <laughs> they do not want to do anything wrong so they're getting yeah they're, they're definitely doing it right by by getting you know the, the smart the best of the best in here um you know when they are so
0: all of that talk of asset bubbles and nobody wants to have the kind of the next mortgage-backed security scandal here in in in, in or, or um, a bubble bursting here in here in China, like it did in the US a few years back. Mm. Yeah, exactly. um, good stuff, and so so this is a good point where I think we can take a step back. We've talked about consumer, we've talked about tech, we've talked about uh, the finance industry a bit. Um, we haven't talked about manufacturing, but that I think we've covered for, that's certainly on Ganbei we have, and I think a lot of people know that story about uh, manufacturing companies leaving um, either, of course, because costs have gone up, but also because, um, maybe some diversification of after COVID was a bit of a, a shock on the supply chain side where American companies and foreign companies in general, multinational companies realized maybe they had too much of their manufacturing in China and, and even just a two-month interruption could be could be devastating and and, and too risky to do that. So I think we, we can that would be a whole nother area for us to cover and have covered before on this podcast. But so manufacturing, tech, consumer and finance, do we see... Um, Do we see a general trend towards more or less market access by the the Chinese government? So so the short history of course is China joined the WTO in I believe 2002 um, and that led and they made a lot of promises and some of those areas sectors opened up sooner some didn't you know Visa and MasterCard lobbied forever to try and get in here by the time they got in here Alipay and WeChat Pay, which are the dominant payment methods, and nobody was using credit cards. So, um, what uh, what do we think the general? You you touched on a little bit already, Tom. But what do we think the general trend is for um, for market access? Do we see China continuing to open up more and more sectors beyond finance, and what sectors might those be next?
2: Well, I mean, we can talk about the. The new, um, the new foreign investment law uh, that just yep. passed. And uh, this is actually quite interesting it, without going too much in the, in the legal or technical detail. Um, but essentially the, the first uh, uh, interesting part is that Chinese company and foreign company should be treated equally um so that's a big principle the technical implementation of of that are still unknown so we're going to see uh but on principle if as a foreign company uh, you see that you're treated differently than a foreign company than a chinese company uh you can actually go to uh, the authorities and, uh, and and ask for uh, rectification so the the principle is now here the other thing that is also interesting to see is uh, the uh the the negative list so it's all the type of um, of industries and sectors that are either forbidden completely forbidden to you for investments uh, restricted meaning you need to usually have a Chinese partner to enter uh and uh, allowed and um so this this negative list um has seen essentially a size decreasing over the year there was a More than 100 different sectors listed um, about 10 years ago, there's now about 30 and it's actually going down even uh, automotive. um, Is um, is uh, deemed to be removed from the uh, from the restricted, so we see more and more sectors and industry being completely uh, open or at least restrict uh, uh, the, on, uh, the restricted side. So uh, uh, less forbidden, less restricted, more open uh, sector. So I think there is uh, there is definitely uh, an opening. Um, the interesting question would be really why? Uh, and it's again, like coming back to, Um, Why is foreign investment so welcome? Uh, What is the plan? What is the long game? Is this uh, about innovation? This is what I see because I read everything through the the tech lens. Um, Is it about, um, I don't know, maybe uh, building a stronger domestic market with the rise of the middle class? Maybe uh, Paul has a a point of this. Um, uh, This is, I think, the really interesting question that foreign businesses needs to to have um, an answer to.
0: Yeah, Paul, what, what do you think about that? As far as um, you know, because foreign, foreign investment is, is definitely a smaller and smaller um, a percentage of uh, compared to the overall GDP, I think, and and we do see. I think the AmCham survey that we cited it does does say that foreign companies, to, to Nico's point, are viewing um, the system as more transparent, and the, and the new foreign uh, foreign investment law is a good step in that direction. Um, that there's kind of this principle of of, uh, I guess called national treatment right where there's no differentiation between foreign and and Chinese companies but but then still on the ground as far as I I wonder if if it's almost I'm trying not to be too pessimistic here too cynical but I wonder if it's it's just so if it's convenient now almost to attempt to not make distinctions anymore because Chinese companies are so strong they don't need any protection anymore
1: Uh, that's a, that's a good point, right? I think there have been, uh, you know, anecdotally and, and some of the clients I've been working with, they, they've said that the, from a practicality point of view, uh, working with the government, getting licenses, getting anything administrative done has been a lot easier. Okay. Um, and I think Nico touched upon that. I think the execution of that, you know, I think, yeah, it's one thing to set up your base or to set up your house or your set up your store or, or your business, but then to be able to get customers, to be able to do the acquisition part, to be able to find relevant partners in the in the marketplace, I think is still challenging. Okay, so those are unwritten rules. Those are just the the sort of the cultural nuances of doing business here. Um, you know, so I think from a standard, you know, yes, big market, a lot of opportunity, huge population. You know, multi-tier cities, geographical regions. I think all those things are are definitely in place, right? The execution of that becomes a little bit more challenging, and that's the part that I think, from a you know, from a marketing perspective, from a front end consumer perspective, that's a challenge, right? How do you differentiate? How do you stand out? There's so much competition in this market. Um, I, you know, all those nuances of of, of just succeeding and, and and getting your product off the ground, whether it's a B two C or B two B product, I think those fundamentals are are, are still in place. Um, On on that note, right? So it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's again, it's a double edged sword. I think what China, I think China recognizes what's happening, right? And a lot of what I've been reading in the Wall Street Journal has been around sort of, you know, North America has this sort of, this, 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 this this, this sort of, you know, misunderstanding of this market. And then it's being, and then, you know, politically it's being filtered throughout. And so again, I think China needs that important investment. There's a lot of innovation, you know, uh, global companies are not seeing growth uh, in other markets, right? So new business pitches, you know, uh, you know, with, markets, with, with agency services, again, it's a lagging indicator, but you're starting to see a lot of global HQs putting a lot more emphasis on Chinese companies, Chinese, uh, you know, regional directors here to say, hey, you need to actually make up a lot of the growth that's missing in any. That's missing in other parts of the world, right? And yeah. and it's like you know, wow, that's you know, a you're finally listening to the fact that, you know, I'm important because I'm based here in China, but you're giving me now these un- unrealistic expectations, because of the fact that we're growing and we're back to new normal here. So you know, it's 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 sort of both sides um, that are making it challenging to do business here. At the same time, yeah, it's open. There are a lot of companies. You know, a lot of companies are signing up. Here, a lot of small and medium-sized enterprises are coming in with unique products, unique services. But then you need to put a huge amount of money just to just to make yourself relevant for for local consumers to understand who you are. So that's the brand awareness part, um, and that's the that's the challenge of of of, of business um, overall to sustain itself here. And do
2: and you see? I, do, oh, so oh, go sorry. ahead, Rico. That's great. Yeah, I just wanted to add um, another. Uh, misconception that foreign companies have when they when they enter China because you need to check a lot of money on, on accessing the market and so on and um, one of the other danger is IP you need to protect your IP a- and there is always this misconception of uh, foreign companies uh, always being targeted by, by Chinese companies uh, by domestic companies and um, as a prey um, it's almost like you know you you, you would have a foreign, Company entering a room where everybody is just waiting for Calorie to, to dine on them. It's actually not the case. Uh, I see this uh, on a, on a daily uh, basis. Uh, domestic company also, you know, in China between each other do have uh, some not-so-good practices regarding um, IP, acquiring IP, or just stealing IP. So it's the name of the game, unfortunately, here, and it has nothing to do with being a a foreigner. If you have something valuable, you need to protect it. It doesn't matter that you're a foreigner or not. Um, You might maybe not read the game as well as a domestic company do. But it's uh, it's uh, unfortunately it's a common practice. Uh, the good thing is uh, the government is actually uh, very aware of this. The the uh, new foreign investment law is actually um, putting IP protection uh, very much forward. Uh, so I hope that we're going to see uh, some change. But it's essentially not it's nothing personal. Um, if you are a foreign company, you just need to protect your stuff.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, hey, hey, and Tom. Speaking of IP, so um, your, you know, a, a lot of the IP I imagine in your in your industry, broad, of course, broadly speaking, is is know-how and and kind of um, methodologies and and that forth. Are you concerned at all, as a you know, it's the, you as a broadly speaking, as a representative of the finance industry? Uh, all right, is there any concern that um, you are you're bringing in some kind of knowledge or experience or practice that is going to make your, your competitors stronger? And, you know, because that was always traditionally the, the fear of, of other industries, right? You have tech or, or consumer manufacturing that I'm, if I have to partner with or I have to dive in deep in this market and kind of show how I do things that then eventually just making my, my competitors stronger. Is there any, any thinking about that in the finance industry?
3: That's an interesting question. Um, it's hard for me to say there's anything I can do to make Vanguard stronger. Or you know, <laughs> they're they're gonna crush true, us. You know, true, no matter true. what. Um, yeah. But in other so not this isn't my uh, sector, but in trading strategies, that's where a lot of IP comes into play for finance. Yeah. So these are like algorithms that can buy and sell really quickly. And you bring that into China, the the day you bring it in in some cases, even your brokerage is monitoring what you're doing and they're trying Mm -hmm. to develop your back test, uh, like like develop your strategy based on what you're doing. So I I agree with you, Nico. It doesn't matter who you are. If it's a value, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be, they're gonna try and and do it themselves, which is the only way to really develop when you're at this stage. So I, I think it's, and I liked your question, like what, why are they opening up? I think it must be because they know that they'll develop better um, if they have new talent in here. They're just not going to make mm. the same mistake as they had for the past, you know, thousands of years when foreign, you know, you know, foreign entities come in and just, you know, do some bad stuff. So I think they're doing it really well. It's it's cutthroat, but yeah, I mm. think it's a pretty positive outlook.
0: Yeah. It's a blue ocean of perhaps and so you're probably less concerned about, um, you know, losing your 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 algorithm or methodology, if it still is just so much upside that can be tempting here. Um, Paul, I wanted to go back to you a a bit on, um, you know, you mentioned something about um, about how China is such an important market for so many multinational companies here and traditionally um, the biggest cons- complaint uh, of local management here is that they haven't been delegated enough authority to localize their products or the decision-making and, and the marketing rollout, I'm sure, uh, all down the line. And so you mentioned that suddenly they have a lot more pressure to, pro- to produce results to save the rest of so other parts of the world for the, for the, for the, the company and for the financial results, etc., do you see with that increased responsibility, getting um, increased authority here as well for the local teams that you might work with?
1: Yeah. So I, we're, I'm, 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 I'm seeing it happen now. Right. Meaning in the sense that, you know, all, all some of the some of the C levels that I'm talking to, they're saying, listen, this is my financial contribution to our global P and L. All right. And some companies are hitting, you know, 20, 25%, uh, uh, you know, and then with that next year, they're saying you need to contribute, you know, 35, 40% of, of total, right? So it, it it increases, right? So with that autonomy, uh, or with that, you know, again, that contribution, some have given them uh, a level of autonomy here, all right? Um, and a lot of these, a lot of these multinational companies are saying, hey, listen, here are are presenting case studies, right? So, you know, the way they write, ra- you know, I always ask, how are you rationalizing it or how are you explaining it to headquarters? And and they'll use, you know, case studies and, and and best practices and what, you know, other companies are doing. And, you know, there's there's so many out there in terms of this is not how to do it, right? Classic, you know, uh, there was the, the Dolce and Cabana sort of uh, fallout from in luxury uh, a year ago, right? Where they were sort of trying to spoof off this this model, you know, using chopsticks, but it just turned into this cultural sort of racism sort of uh, element, right? So poorly executed. You're seeing it uh, again with a few other foreign companies coming in. But so a lot of those case studies then have then made the case for, hey, we need a certain level of autonomy here. If I'm producing results, right, if I'm showing growth and I'm meeting my numbers, then just let me do it the way that it should be done in this market, right? So there are some multinational companies that are doing that, right? I'm working with one, one right now. It's an American company um, that did very well. It's an electronics company, and they're actually trying to, ex- I'm working with them to try to set up a, a think tank sort of uh, enterprise based here in China to try to outsource or to export innovation, right, uh, to North America, to the US. The challenge is that the infrastructure, uh, again, from a consumer perspective, is not necessarily there in any other markets outside of China, right? Delivery, mobile payments. You know O to o. Again, a lot of these things are not necessarily established, but we're trying to take bits and pieces of that to say, hey, listen, this is how you can apply it within our situation, within the retail environment, within the franchises that we have in North America to make it work. Okay, so uh, so yes, there's it's it depends on the industry. I think financial you know sector is probably a lot more tightly controlled. Right. But if you're getting into consumer uh, products, you know, especially within food, the ability to create new uh, flavors, to the ability to uh, do what they call uh, brand crossovers or collaborations. Right. So you're seeing AT, you know, uh, the T brand with cosmetics, T brand with athletic leisure, right, sporting goods with with, you know, beauty products again non-traditional combinations of partnership that do not exist, that would not even filter into a conversation in New York or London are starting to happen here. And then if that level of success is happening, then it begs the question of, hey, how can we translate this into a North American environment with nuances, with, you know, with Generation Z in, in that market? So uh, A it depends on category, you know, depends on the product that you're selling. Uh, but there is a lot more autonomy that local, regional directors and, and and local establishments have based on on growth and and the
0: amount that their amount of money they're making really. Mm-hmm. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I want to take it home, guys. Um, with uh, kind of just around, um, go around the table here, the virtual table, and um, uh, on what we think of, yeah, what we think of uh, an outlook. It will be. I mean, we, we cited some statistics and from what the executives at these companies, again, just American companies, are seeing. And maybe there's some pessimism over the next five years. Uh, of course, China is still a big market. We talked about some companies that are doing very well here too. Um, do we see things um, getting more stable? Do we? As I'm talking about just the overall kind of the level of foreign investment. Um, and Then uh, for Nico in particular, I want to ask about European um, foreign investment and do we see it um, how you know, being affected negatively or not at all positively, maybe because, for example, some tech, tech companies here are looking more to European suppliers. It's a very open-ended question for the panel. Um, I'll start with uh, Nico, I guess. So Nico, we, um, what do you see as far as the outlook? Let's say for the next five years, um, as far as foreign investment is concerned, slowing down, flatlining, growing, and then specifically for Europe,
2: I think it's going to be growing. I'm uh, I'm quite bullish on it. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's going to be smarter. It's not going to be um, very blind uh, as it, it could have been in the past. Um, It's going to be really about um, the in China for China, so really developing the market. Um, I think that Paul also added something that is very, very smart. It's about uh, giving power. So it's uh, the the, the governance uh, aspect of in China for China. If something works in China, just let us do it. Uh, We welcome investments from the the global headquarters. But there is stuff that happens here that, first of all, you need to be here to have the finger on the pulse. Um, And there is some uh, lab aspects to China we just need to try um, my girlfriend is from New Zealand, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic petri dish for, uh, big companies, Facebook, Google, they're actually rolling out some, uh, some feature in New Zealand, uh, before the rest of the world. Uh, I think that China is maybe a little bit like this, uh, maybe some features that are only for Chinese, but some other will actually come back to the rest of the world. So it's a it's also the the great benefit of having a a very high adoption rate here. Uh, I mean, we've seen uh, bike sharing just exploding. We've seen electric vehicles completely exploding here. People are very, very hungry for innovation. So uh, really from the top to the bottom, everybody wants innovation. Um, So I see that uh, companies are are continue to uh, to invest here in uh, both capital and uh, and innovation and tech. Uh, Now the, the the issue is Will you have to choose between China and the US Uh, because we've seen that now the supply chain of uh, tech and of R&D might be in conflict if you're uh, providing tech to China, uh, then you can't use uh, US tech or the other way around. Uh, There was actually some policies uh, in in China a couple of months ago uh, saying that the supply chain of your uh, product, especially uh, security and IT security product um, need to be safe from any political or uh, uh, trade tension. Uh, so again, no specific mention of the US, but uh, still a little bit. So uh, there might be some uh, some hard choice to, to, to be made by a um, European company or, or to that extent, any non-US uh, foreign company. Um, will I choose to uh, service China or will I choose to service uh, the US? Uh, this is still not completely clear if that's a, if that's a hard choice. Um, I think that November is also going to give us uh, maybe some some indication about um, what the, the, the Chinese uh, position is going to be on on needing uh, re- requiring that that hard choice to be made. Um, but I think that, uh, companies especially union companies uh, should really look at establishing uh, chinese operation um, only for china and um, as either a spin-off uh, and completely um, you know doing a spin-off of the operation in china that is just going to service china and that's all and nothing is going to come back or targets the entire global operation towards china and, and forget about the us which is a hard choice
0: yeah, the U.S. is definitely still, in a, is still, still the the biggest market for most companies. Although uh, that, yeah, that's a hard choice, and it's crazy in some respects that that, that companies have to make that that choice. I mean, m- many of us that have we've all you know lived in China many years. It's hard. I, mean, I don't think any of us really saw this this completely coming. But that's that would we would go off on a whole other tangent if we got into that. Um, Tom. Uh, What's your, what's your take on the outlook uh, for foreign investment over the next five years or so? Um,
3: well, that, that 70% statistic is, is pretty interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I do wonder, though, is that just general investment anywhere is decreasing, not just ch- specifically to China? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's a good point. point. I mean, companies here, I mean, I, I, so I've been in the U.S. since uh, March or so they're really hurting badly like really bad stimulus has run out uh, depending on your sector it's pretty terrible um, and on a macro level looking at the news every day if i was someone who hasn't been into china yet and i'm i was considering it if i saw the news like like what's happening now i i would not even consider it even you know people in my close network that have been in china for 20 30 years they are—they're worried about me going back in the next couple. Like, it, it's really a bad, uh, a really bad vibe that's going on. So, um, I think the election will be a, a big determinant. How the U.S. pulls out of COVID will be a big determinant on that. Um, but you—you you can't obviously you can't ignore China. It's—it's—it's, it's, it's, you know, going to be the the biggest. So, I'd think with, whether it's five years, ten
0: years, or, or fifteen years, it will eventually come back yeah no that's a good point it it, it it first about about whether whether it's just a global phenomenon about um just a general pessimism about um putting in new investment and there's so many unknowns and when there's unknowns companies tend to just to just kind of sit on their hands and not make investment decisions so it could be some of that for sure but China's a huge market it's hard to ignore it despite all the political tensions but for small companies coming in here, it's a huge investment for them, and so I could see why they would they would they would not want to make that leap. Um, it's as Nico mentioned before, it's a, it's a lot of cost upfront cost I think you know to, to come here in the beginning. Uh, Paul, how about you for um, your outlook on um, um, foreign investment overall um, slowing down flatline or, or increasing let's say over the next five years? Uh,
1: I think it's I think it's split okay and I think you probably have to probably dissect that question uh, into finite detail. So uh, you know, Public health is pretty much uh, stable here. The people trust it. Um, it is, and with that, will dictate the way that consumers, you know, interact, the way consumers behave, the market conditions. Just based on that sort of element, in and of itself, I believe that foreign investment will probably continue. Again, I'm not at a macro level where I'm looking at financial or or manufacturing. Um, I think manufacturing from a, probably a high-end you know, uh, perspective in terms of the type of products they're making will probably still stay in this market, okay? Uh, what I'm reading in terms of outsourcing is probably, or, or moving, shifting is probably low-end uh, type of uh, commodities and products being made. Not sort of, you know, I've, 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 I've worked with, there's one person I was talking to and he said, listen, the type of furniture that I could get from manufacturers in this market is just of a better quality anywhere else around the world at a price point that I cannot beat. All right. And even if they increase, you know, if the prices increase by 15, 20%, it's still, I would still, you know, double down on this market just based on the quality um, uh, that is being made here. Okay. So uh, I, I think, I think if anything, I'm hopeful, I think China because of the fact that they've been able to stabilize it from stabilize the condition from a public health uh, perspective, that has then allowed it to accelerate every other aspect of business uh, economically that the rest of the world is just trying to wrestle with because they have not gotten public health down all right so uh, and then based and and then the other layer what I spoke to earlier is around uh, globally you know these a lot of these multinationals a lot of these FMCG brands even automotive you're seeing it they're not picking up you know people aren't buying right it's just not picking up so they're relying on China more, um, and then you know again, it's a cliche to say China's a big market, and and it's you know true because it dictates a lot of businesses and the decisions that they make, especially at a regional level, uh, market in market level, regional level, and then globally, right? So I'm optimistic. Uh, I I think it will increase again. You're seeing uh, you know other you know pharma is a is a is or, or sort of pharma is a category that will increase here in this market, right? You're seeing the trend lines of, of people just getting older so you know that is and and i'm seeing a lot of uh i'm, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of people where they're saying you know insurance companies life insurance a lot of these policy companies coming in and they're they have the ability to you know again it's untapped because it's still immature right Tom could probably give a little bit more nuance but again these are things i'm seeing um That are happening, Uh, so I'm I'm optimistic, and I think there will be more investment here, depending on the category. Um, Again, there's no intellectual property with food (laughs) per se, right? Flavors are flavors, and 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 what you see uh, at the store in terms of our restaurants. Um, But that will start, that will continue
0: to increase because it's just a lot of mouths to feed uh, here in China. Makes sense. Yeah, this this this. It sounds like overall we are. We are cautiously optimistic. Is that fair to say? We are. We 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 all have our kind of our, our livelihood here. I'm and Tom. We're waiting for you to come back um, when you when you can. But um, but we all we all have uh, you know a lot of invested here. We've all been here many many years, and um, we just think I'm sure it's hard to ignore it is a cliche to how big the market is and how, how well even foreign companies have done here despite some of the, maybe the disadvantages, protectionism and local companies getting better and better. Still right now, it's such a bright spot. Um, well, that's about, I think all we have time for today, guys. I really appreciate it. Fantastic panel. Uh, Tom, thanks for staying up late on the East Coast for us. Uh, but I know these days you this is actually right on schedule for you. uh, albeit it's Sunday at your time. Um, uh, I wanted to give you guys one more chance to, to anything you guys, um, if anyone listening to the podcast wants to reach out to you guys, um, what's the best way to contact you? Um, LinkedIn or, um, any, any preferred way for Twitter or any, any, any handle you guys want to, uh, give out here on, on the, uh, on the podcast airwaves.
2: LinkedIn. Yeah. LinkedIn. Okay. Yeah, yeah,
1: LinkedIn for me is probably the best way. And then from there, we could connect personally, either through WeChat or any other platform, Twitter, Instagram,
0: but LinkedIn. Yeah. Same here, cool.
3: yeah, LinkedIn.
0: Awesome. All right, thanks guys so much. This was fun. I hope our audience uh, finds as much fun as we did. Um, you're all old friends of mine, so it's good to uh, it's good to catch up here. And uh, and that's a wrap. And um, thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Ganbei Bay. And over and out.